Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. These are exciting times for fans of electric vehicles. Tesla, the Silicon Valley electric car maker, recently introduced its long-awaited, relatively affordable Model 3, complete with an order backlog that's months long. Also recently, the governments of France and the UK announced their goal to phase out the sale of new gas and diesel cars within a generation, likely replacing many of those cars with electrics. Yet the electric vehicle market has looked poised for breakthrough in the past, only to disappoint. In the 1990s, General Motors developed a promising electric car, the EV1, that it subsequently sought to erase from common memory. Around the time that Henry Ford introduced the Model T, electric cars were common, yet they ultimately all but disappeared. What will it take to make electric cars stick this time around? Can manufacturers finally overcome the perennial challenges of high cost and the lack of charging networks? And what policies might support further growth of the EV market? Here to talk about these issues is today's guest, John Paul McDuffie. John Paul, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. John Paul is a professor of management at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and director of the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation, an international research consortium focused on the global automotive industry. So, John Paul, to get started here, can you tell us about your work in the EV market specifically, as well as your work with the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation? Sure. Uh, My background is almost 30 years now of studying the global automotive industry, and so each time EVs have uh, made a surge forward, I've been there watching that very carefully, so I'm aware of the, the, the peaks and valleys of that history. This program on vehicle and mobility innovation is really trying to keep an eye on all of the innovations in technologies, but also business models and uh, changes in how people get around that are upon us now. It's an incredibly exciting time, and many of these trends are really linking up. So we think not just about EVs as a standalone, but what if there are electric driverless cars, and what if they are deployed not by owners, but in fleets uh, that people are using in place of ever owning a car. So um, all that is what we're keeping an eye on in the program on vehicle mobility innovation. So it does seem to be an exciting time for electric vehicles, a lot of development in the market. Where do we stand in terms of the penetration of electric vehicles at this point, and how fast is the market growing? It's one of these really interesting uh, statistical trends that depends a little bit on what eyeglasses you want to put on it. So uh, the growth rate has been very steep, uh, sometimes year-on-year over 100% growth. But you have to realize it started from a base that uh, actually kind of reset after that EV1 period you talked about in the 90s to zero. So a trend that resets to zero and then starts to grow again, it's pretty easy to show those big increases at first. The reality check I often remind people of is that the global automotive sales in 2016 were 88.1 million. Electric vehicle sales were less than 1% of that. So we have a long way to go, even though the growth curve has been pretty steep. And that's also quite unevenly distributed around the world. So we've seen this optimism before. Can you give us a little bit of history on on EV growth in the past and why we might be a little bit wary this time around? Yeah, I think wary and and more optimistic. Uh, the, the 90s, as you said, were a time of experimentation, bringing some new models out. 
There were some favorable policy pushes from the government. The technologies were starting to come together. But they really did not resonate with consumers. Gas prices were low. The battery range was limited. The charging infrastructure was essentially nil. And as a result, uh, as you said, even the companies who pioneered uh, backed away really fast. Uh, GM got a really bad name as captured in a famous documentary who killed the electric car for recalling and crushing every single EV1 that was ever manufactured. So then there was a bit of a lull. The next uh, wave was actually aimed at the high end. So we know Tesla, of course, as the most famous example, but there were two or three others that were aiming at the high-end market, betting that they could come in there, have a different kind of value proposition that wasn't based on lifetime payback, but sort of the cool factor and the environmental factor. Tesla's the only one that survived that wave, but their success did give a lot of hope and encouragement to advocates, and it eventually challenged companies like Mercedes and BMW to say, hey, probably every Tesla sale is a sale we're losing and we better start to respond. Uh, The third wave, I would say, is really just in the last uh, five, six years and back to the mass market end. The Nissan Leaf is uh, Nissan's effort to compete. You know, Toyota had the Prius. Honda had also a lot of hybrid technology. Nissan said more or less hey, we don't want to be third in the hybrid market. Let's try to go for all electric. They had very big hopes. Uh, The LEAF has done well in the sense of the best-selling electric vehicle ever, but it's been way lower than Nissan was hoping. And interestingly, its sales have actually been slumping year on year, even though its technical characteristics keep improving. So it's a complex market. But um, we see tons of investment right now from many, many companies We see public policy steps that seem encouraging. We see things like Dieselgate, which suddenly make diesel look really bad and not at all environmentally friendly, and that helps EVs. So I'm sure we'll talk about a bunch of these. So what are the key challenges to continued EV growth at this point? What needs to be solved? So the the, the sort of classic list of things that people would describe as barriers to EV would be battery cost, uh, battery range, and then charging infrastructure. And there is progress on each of those. Battery cost is coming down. Um, I had one statistic here that battery costs have dropped uh, nearly 54% since 2013 from about $600 per kilowatt hour to about 275 per kilowatt hour. Um, Whether we can do a straight-line projection forward from that is not so clear. Some of that gain has come from scale, simply building more of them. Um, I think a really important thing to say about batteries is there has not been a Moore's Law for batteries like we have seen for microprocessors in in the IT world, where exponential improvements in performance and exponential drops in price have created this, you know, this revolution that keeps on giving on the technology side. Batteries have been around for 100 years. It's a chemistry that has some perhaps inherent limits. Uh, Battery performance has improved on every dimension, but it's improved sort of linearly, sort of incrementally. And even with these, you know, encouraging drops in battery costs, it's not because there's been some technological breakthrough. It's more technological refinements. 
power management refinements. There's a lot in how with software you manage the use of the battery packs, some charging refinements. Um, so, but anyway, the, the battery costs are, are coming down. Range is increasing. It's another dimension of battery performance that's improving. And people have had in mind that there's sort of points like 200 miles that might really make people feel comfortable all of a sudden. The average commute for work in the U.S. is about 40 miles round trip a day. So then you might say, hey, if you've got 100 miles range, that should be enough. But people aren't necessarily comfortable getting a car that is okay, fine for their daily commute if they don't do anything unusual, but what about the weekend when they want to go away? What about a family vacation? I mean, for a long trip. For a, for a long trip. So what are, what are you know, do we have to worry about a recharging kind of place? So I do think as range goes up, people get uh, more relaxed. But I think the third piece of that is the charging infrastructure. And um, people like Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of, of Renault and Nissan, uh, with their LEAF, has said... Battery electric vehicle sales seem to go hand in hand with infrastructure or charging availability, and he doesn't think that sales will ever get out ahead of the available of charging infrastructure. So obviously he wants to encourage governments and companies to invest in that. The countries where there have been big pushes on infrastructure, even ahead of sales, it has definitely helped spur diffusion. And I would say the countries where the infrastructure piece has lagged, it probably has suppressed them. So maybe to wrap all of that up, the, the, the optimistic predictions say things like, okay, the cost is getting lower and the range is getting better and there's more infrastructure, so we should see a tipping point. The skeptical view says, well, people don't necessarily look at lifetime costs when they buy a vehicle. They worry about the thing they have to pay up front. That gets to subsidies, which we'll talk about. They don't just worry about their daily routine. They worry about the unusual long trips. And with charging infrastructure, maybe they can charge at home, maybe they can't. But again, what are they going to be able to do if there's a charger, but they have to stay three hours to recharge it, which some of the more older technologies would require? That's a kind of deterrent. So uh, until electric vehicles are not only cheaper right out of the box, as well as on an operating basis, and convenient, maybe better than what people get from their current car. I think that's what when the tipping point happens. So what has the history of uh, incentives and government support for the industry been to this point? Where do we stand? Yeah, um, subsidy is one of the things that governments go to first. It really does help with individual purchases because it takes the sting of that initial price tag away. It pulls people in. Um, You know, fleets, any organization that runs a fleet, they pay a lot of attention to lifetime costs. But it's known that individual consumers don't really quite know how to factor. They don't know how long they'll keep it. And it's it's not so much the way they think financially. So... uh, the incentives, the, the subsidies are great. The U.S. has had a, a pretty generous one, uh, $7,500 as a tax credit. You have to have a tax at least of 7500 in order to get it. And there are some other conditions to that, which, which I can mention in a moment. Um, and then there are state incentives that are added to that. Uh, when the federal subsidies were starting off and there were a bunch of states piling on and adding, it created a nice kind of upsurge of interest. Uh, There's some uncertainties about the federal subsidies, some ways in which there's some built-in phase-out of those subsidies, Mm -hmm. and some of the states have flip-flopped against supporting 
EVs to almost being against them. So it's kind of like the thing that helps turn the tap on can actually, unfortunately, flip to turning it off fairly quickly as well. Um, I'll just mention briefly a country, uh, Norway, which, of course, is an outlier in so many ways, but it uh, has cheap energy because of its oil and it has cheap electricity, and they've just made a big commitment to everything EV. So 40% of new vehicle sales in Norway are EVs now. Great. Well, they also, you they don't charge you with tax. They give you access to those fast lanes on the highway. You get free parking. You have access to amazing infrastructure of chargers that you don't pay for. So they're not just, got an EV. Yeah. they're not just giving, there's no value added tax, which is almost 40% off the price of a, of a vehicle in, in, in Europe. So they're not just applying one tool, they're applying every imaginable economic incentive as well as marketing and the green image. They think it enhances the entire country's image. And it probably does. So, you know, anytime we look at just one policy lever in a very different country, it's probably not going to be enough. Let's look then at what's going on here specifically in the United States Um, with the Trump administration uh, rolling back cafe fuel economy standards. Okay, so if the the gasoline power cars don't have to be as efficient, then obviously the costs presumably would stay down, make them more competitive. Where do we stand nationally in terms of support for EVs, particularly given what's going on in Washington right now? Yeah, everybody is waiting to see if the existing $7,500 federal tax credit will be rolled back in some way. Um, there's a lot of reasons to suspect it, it might be or that the Trump administration would, would try to do that, as well as the cafe changes you described. The way the tax credit was written into law, any single company making electric vehicles gets up to 200,000 sales in the U.S. lifetime in order to get the tax credit. Across all their models? Across all their electric models, any model that qualifies. So Ford, for example, which has had some electric models for a number of years now, has hit about 90,000. So they've got another 110,000 before the buyers of those cars can't claim it anymore. This was all to keep you know any big company from sucking up advantage for years and years and possibly not making it as easy for a small company. Tesla, which we're all very interested in, has hit about 130,000 in the U.S. They're just now starting to ramp up production of the Model 3, for which they have 400,000 back orders. Those aren't all in the U.S., but a lot of them are. So you can find fascinating discussions online from anyone interested in Tesla. Am I going to get the tax credit or not? And it depends on a lot of things, how quickly Tesla does the buildup, but they will surely hit the 200,000 before too long. There's a few, you know, minor things like it continues to, the subsidy kind of tapers off for about 15 months after you hit the 200,000 to 50% to 25%. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the end is near unless it were renewed in a positive direction. So that's where the Trump administration, being perhaps a bit hostile to this, they could either just do nothing and let this one run out and not renew it, and that would already have a negative effect, or they could actually try to eliminate it. Um, CAFE, as you said, is a factor. It's probably mostly been a factor uh, in spurring the auto companies to make their gasoline engines more fuel efficient. There has been a big improvement. And there is a phenomenon that that scholars of technology talk about called the last gasp phenomenon, where when an incumbent technology is threatened by a newcomer for a while, there's all these spurts of innovation, patent activity, advances on the criteria that are 
the, the basis of being threatened. And then eventually, if the new technology really is superior, that it, it is a gasp and the old technology dies. We seem to be in the middle of some of that with the internal combustion engine. So that's helping the companies meet CAFE. The other thing they're doing is buying some of the uh, credits that Tesla gets, for example, in a state like California for having zero emission vehicles. GM can buy some of those tax credits from Tesla and then meet its CAFE numbers. Tesla's actually gotten some nice funding from that. Mm. Um, People complain about how much federal subsidy Tesla gets. Really, they get the tax credits for people who buy their cars, but most of the rest of what they get are the sale of these uh, tax credits to other companies to meet CAFE. You know, you mentioned uh, what's going on in Norway. The whole country seems to be behind the electrification of the the car industry. Here, it's not so clear. Are we seeing, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead on this, are we seeing a situation where the electric car is being politicized much in the same way that clean energy has been politicized here in the United States? Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, I think the electric car, like other green or environmental uh, causes and and products and policies, uh, is a target for a certain kind of you know, political battle. So if the liberals like it, the conservatives are going to be opposed to it. And my best example at the moment of some of the weird ways this can play out is in the state of Georgia. Georgia had for a time the most generous state level subsidy for EVs. So the Nissan Leaf, for example, was selling like gangbusters because there was a federal plus the state. It was 7,500 from the federal and 5,000 from the state. It became politicized in the state legislature. The Republicans pushed through a bill that basically eliminated that, but also said, hey, those electric cars, they're not paying any gasoline tax. We depend on that to maintain our highways. We're going to charge the buyer of an electric vehicle $200 a year to make up for their... So not surprisingly, EV sales plummeted to close to zero after that when it went from a subsidy to actually a penalty. Looking at the infrastructure for a moment, there's been a bit of debate about who should be putting up that infrastructure, um, how you know who should pay for it. Um, In California, I believe some utilities have been involved. In other places, utilities have tried to be involved, but states have said no. What's going on there? Yeah, the I mean, the sense I get from looking at sort of straight financial analyses is nobody has been making any money from investing in EV infrastructure. We don't really know with Tesla because they bundle their proprietary superchargers in with the cost of buying a car and they're selling these luxury cars. But uh, there's a company called ChargePoint that's the leader in the U.S. and apparently they really struggle financially to raise capital to, you know, to put on a big push. Uh, utilities have done have done some of it. That also can get politicized. There was a time when utilities were really worried that if there was a surge in a tipping point of EVs, they wouldn't be able to cope with the surge of demand for electricity. That turned out to be a wildly overplayed concern, both because there hasn't been a tipping point, but also because when people charge at home, they charge at night. Uh, there are some places, it's more common in Europe, where there's an incentive to charge at night because the electricity cost is lower. And then it actually helps even out the demand over the course of the day. You know, it's uh, there's plenty of ways to keep EV charging from happening at peak times. So I don't really think it's a big problem, but it is so different from the way that utilities think about things. One of the um, developments there that I think is particularly intriguing um, and promising is the idea of having lamp posts mm-hmm. uh, in cities be places where you could like 
many, many, many lampposts would have the ability to charge a slow, traditional trickle kind of charge, but then people wouldn't have to block off dedicated spaces with a big fancy charger. Wherever that's been done, it's quite politically, it's expensive, but it's also quite politically unpopular. And right here in Philadelphia, they had a program. Somebody who owned an EV could ask the city for a special parking place near their house. And there were signs to say, don't park here, electric vehicle. And there was a nice little charger there. Only 40 or 50 of these were installed and the backlash started. This isn't fair. It's hard to get parking in this area. Why should they be able to have a dedicated parking space? So I think anything that makes charging more ubiquitous, um, you know, in parking garages and things too, but for urban dwellers to ever be part of this revolution, it's got to get into the infrastructure quickly. Well, it sounds like a bit of a catch-22. If you live out in the burbs, and you want to take a long trip, then you need the highway quick chargers. You don't want to wait three hours for your car to charge. Yep. If you live in a city, EVs seem to make a lot of sense, but you don't have a garage, so yeah. we're going to plug it in. Yeah, these are these are definitely some of the issues. And it doesn't take too many of these inconvenience factors, even if you don't fully understand the up-to-the-minute state of things, to dissuade people from, from doing it. I want to step back just for a moment to that utility issue again. Um, yeah. the, the funding, public funding of this, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, build-out of the charging stations versus private. You said that the largest company that's focused on charging stations in this country is not doing well financially. So how do we get that charging infrastructure that we need? You know, in in the U.S., I think it's probably continues to be framed in these classic chicken and egg kinds of ways. And so investors will essentially say, well, if we see the surge in demand, then we'll uh, imagine we can earn a reasonable profit on this and we'll invest. Um, in other countries, I think there has been more subsidy. In Europe, there's a patchwork of small companies that put in infrastructure that created a problem that if you were driving around a big country or or across Europe, you'd leave your company's charging zone and you'd be in another and you'd have to sign up. You know, you could, but you'd have to sign up and give your account, create an account and give it your credit card. Um, I had an interesting visit recently to a company in Berlin called Hubject, whose business model is entirely establishing a layer above all of these small regional players in Europe. So you can, you, there's a little Hubject brand that goes on their branded charging stations and you can just have your Hubject card and you can charge at all of them. And it also helps you with IT that helps you find them and things like that. And that's an example of the smart kind of incremental way of taking a patchwork that doesn't quite work for people and making it workable. But that was all fueled by a bunch of, of, of you know, federal, regional, and local urban policies that at least got that infrastructure investment started. And I think we're, we're just behind on that in, in the U.S. The other kind of really telling example right now in the world is China, which has set some very aggressive goals for uh, EV sales or EV ownership, but has also been willing to make a very high investment both in what you would imagine as a charging, uh, you know, plaza with lots of uh, of stalls, but also a lot of this sort of available in the in the urban setting, single stations. 
they seem to both understand and have the political will and the willingness to put money behind it that if they get out ahead on the infrastructure, it's going to facilitate the sales. They have terrible pollution problems. And so, uh, you know, all the people who thought, oh, maybe China will be smart and leapfrog the the era of everybody buying their own gasoline engine and, and clogging the roads and polluting the air. Nope, didn't happen. China went very fast down that path and they now have terrible congestion and terrible pollution. That's one thing the government is starting to want to respond to. And then the other thing is that the Chinese domestic auto companies, they work in joint venture with multinational automakers. The idea was that from that they would learn to be super good car makers and they would start to export their cars all over the world. Hasn't happened. They've been able to sell massively into China, which has been growing like hotcakes, but they're products they make themselves are not good enough to be attractive in export markets, even if they might be cheaper. So the Chinese government now thinks, well, EVs are a little bit cheaper, easier to build, not as complicated, the architecture. And hey, the rest of the world is not rushing to make these yet. So maybe this is the niche for our domestic companies to sort of have a prominent place on the world stage. And so the Shanghai Automotive Corporation, which is a partner with both GM and Volkswagen, they were here for an exec ed program at Wharton last year, and they said, you know, we have plans to launch 30 battery electric vehicles in the next three years off a base of almost zero. They have the highest R&D budget of any country uh, of any company in China. And, you know, I mean, these could be slightly inflated claims like some of the other uh, claims that come out of China. But there's a lot of reason to think the government's serious, the companies are serious, and they're going to make progress. And remember that this Volvo announcement that got a lot of attention, right, which is that Volvo is not going to have any straight internal combustion engines after 2019. Volvo is now a Chinese company. Volvo is owned by Geely, which is one of these Chinese domestics. Is that a way to get a broader market for the Chinese technology through Volvo? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think Volvo is is allowed to operate fairly independently. Um, but, of course, there's no longer the barrier of a joint venture to technology transfer. Um, Volvo uh, has done quite well under Geely ownership, has regained a lot of its um, pizzazz in the market, uh, hasn't lost its safety image, but has some exciting new products that are high performers. And so I think it was a bold move, but consistent with what a Chinese company might want to do, a way to get some attention when you're a small niche player. And it's probably going to have ripple effects for a lot of other companies. England or the UK and France recently announced this summer that they will be phasing out the sale of new gasoline and diesel powered cars, I think by 2040, if I yep. got that date yep. right. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, how do they make the environment, meaning you know their marketplace, ripe for that? And are there going to be any ripple effects from, from this as well? Well, people are really wondering. It's, it's another example of a bold pledge. It's a lot further out, and uh, many changes of governments uh, could happen and many changes of policy potentially. I think it does reflect the, the dieselgate situation. So Europe is much bigger into diesel than the U.S. They tax it favorably. Their emissions laws are friendly to the kinds of emissions that diesel engines put out and less friendly to the ones that gasoline engines put out, and the U.S. is the exact opposite. So diesel's never taken off in the U.S. It's really big in Europe. I think it's even bigger in France, actually, than it is in Germany. Like 60% of vehicle sales from Renault and Peugeot are are diesel. So um, 
you could see this as both an effort to uh, claim a kind of a green position and also to send a, a super strong message to these companies that, hey, we're not going to allow business as usual, especially now that we know how bad these diesel engines are for the environment. Uh, the cities, particularly like London and Paris, are seeing all kinds of signs of damage to health and damage to buildings and all sorts of things from the diesel fumes. So they would love to, they've been muttering about it for a while. And now I think they may be emboldened to block diesel from the central city uh, much, much sooner. So, but doing a bunch of things about diesel or doing a bunch of things about the city center is still quite different from actually banning any internal combustion engine. Um, If they say no new sales, Average vehicle life these days is a good 10, 12, 14 years. So even if on 2040 they started not selling any new gasoline engines, we'd still see them around till 2055. So now we're talking a pretty long time period for predicting much of anything, and maybe it's relatively safe. Um, But what people wonder is, you know, how many companies are going to feel able to give up the bread and butter drivetrain of their products in some dramatic way without knowing what it does to their economies of scale, to everything about their business model. Well, I wanted to ask you a question related to that. So say certain countries push forward aggressively, uh, making the environment right for the the EV market. Uh, Other countries don't. Say the United States lags behind, but Europe pushes ahead. These manufacturers are global what predicament does it put them in and how might countries have to respond? Uh, uh, Honda can't make one kind of car for the U.S. and another car with a completely different engine technology for Europe, for say, for example. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the globalization pattern for the auto industry has been interesting in this regard. There was a time when the developed countries had, you know, new latest technology. And what you might find in a developing country is the old designs, the old tools, you know, close the factory in the U.S. or Europe and send it to Asia, to Latin America and open it, making the old products and figure nobody there, people there will be happy enough to get a car, they'll take it. At some point that started to change, I would say in the 90s, it became uh, governments were toughening up their their emission standards, their their regulations. It became actually cheaper and better for these companies to have the same factory in different countries making the same kind of cars for quality control, for efficiency of capital investment and the like. So all of a sudden, the factory in Poland, the factory in Brazil, the factory in Michigan, the factory in Brussels are exactly the same technology and they're turning out exactly the same car. So from that moment on, these companies, the thing they hate most is having to do variation internationally. And they don't love collaborating with their competitors on things like standards, but if they can get to a place where there's agreement across countries to accept the same product, they're thrilled. So any of this patchwork of different approaches is gonna drive them crazy. They'll advocate against it. you know, will it, the problem with the EV aspect of it is if it means that the total scale of EV growth is spotty, right? So some places it's kind of surging, but other places it's lagging behind. The net scale is not going to be as attractive as the tipping point idea would suggest. And there's still, you know, a lot of capital investments involved in any of these product decisions. And, and I guess also if it feels political and that a com- country that is supporting it now could flip around and not support it, that's so 
that kind of uncertainty, uh, regulatory political uncertainty, is unfortunately quite negative for almost any of these drivers of EV. Uh, the, the subsidies, the economies of scale for the batteries, the economies of scale for the charging infrastructure, et cetera. Take a country like Germany where the economy is deeply tied in and dependent upon the automotive industry. Uh, I was reading an article recently talking about the fact that several years ago Angela Merkel had pushed back against EU carbon emissions regulations that could have hurt the big automakers in Germany. I think those companies are coming around to electrics at this point, but could we see economies endangered by this transition? Sure. And it's a real dilemma for, uh, for Germany, for the German companies, but also the German policymakers. Uh, they didn't want to condemn too quickly, uh, some of the diesel scandal because they didn't want to hurt these very important drivers of a lot of economic activity, but they couldn't ignore it completely. So I think the, the fact that the German companies are announcing a lot of investment in electric vehicles is no coincidence and the government will, will support that. Interestingly, there was a subsidy program announced about June of 2016 for a new German subsidy program for EVs. And uh, it was uh, disappointing, the, the pickup of it. So in other words, not that many consumers responded in the time frame that it was available. So, uh, you know, consumers are not yet fully, you know, influenced in Germany to, to switch. I read an interesting uh, just little anecdotal story recently about the, the leader of the Green Party in Germany got a Tesla and was really very enthusiastic about it. And after using it for about three months, he traded it in for an electric BMW. And he said that basically it didn't have the performance characteristics that he expects from a German car. And uh, the Sounds range like marketing, huh? the <laughs> range was a lot less. I mean, who knows? But I think the um, the this is, I think, another point that's important to make. The fact that the Nissan Leaf sales have been declining despite better battery range, attractive pricing, subsidies, I think is because in a bunch of other ways, people don't find it a very exciting car. It may not have all the features they expect. So electric is one important thing, but we expect many things out of our cars now, and increasingly we expect a lot of IT-related things. And unless the electric vehicles keep up or maybe even impress and thrill consumers on that side, as well as having the electric component um, you know, they could they could be penalized for that reason. That's obviously helped Tesla tremendously because Tesla is cool, cool, cool in every way. It has that giant iPad-like, you know, display and it has had over-the-air software upgrades and it's had some self-driving features and, um, you know, they really cornered the market on both of the EV and the IT coolness. But for other companies, that's uh, a bigger challenge and particularly once you get to the mass market and we don't have as much margin to play with. So I have a question I've been dying to ask you. Uh, As we – let's take the optimistic view on quick development in this country of the EV market. I've got a car. It's five years old. I'm going to drive it into the ground, keep it another 10 years. In 2027, am I going to say, well, I could buy that new gasoline-powered car, but things are moving so fast, I may be stuck with it and can't sell it again five years down the road. So the market's in a place where 10 years from now – I'm going to buy an EV just because that's where everything's going. It's a very nice scenario because it points out that tipping point is not just about enthusiasm for EV. It's pessimism about the prospects for traditional internal combustion and for gasoline power. 
So I think anything which, you know, uh, increases the attractiveness on the one side and increases the pessimism on the other is is only going to help. I mean, I'm guessing that it wouldn't take you till 2027 to make that replacement decision in favor of EV, uh, from what I know about you. But somebody who started as an EV skeptic, um, it could really help that they would worry that they uh, wouldn't be able to sell that, that thing. John Paul, thanks for talking. My pleasure. John Paul McDuffie is professor of management at the Wharton School and director of the Program on Vehicle and Mobility Innovation. For more insights into the transformation of today's energy and transportation industries, check out research and blog posts on the Kleinman Center website. Our URL is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening and have a great day.